Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon on KYAQ Central Coast, Queso Cottage Grove, Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WTPA, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ. Seattle, Washington, KODX. Red Bluff, Redding, California, KFOI. Round Mountain, California, KKRN. Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel. Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation. NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Workforce Rising and Detour Talk, Blanketing the Globe, five days a week. I'm Angie Coro in for Brad and Desi once again today. They are on the road. You hear my show in deep with Angie Coro on many of the same stations and streams. Missing journalist Jamal Khashoggi's death is increasingly being taken as fact. In a few minutes, we'll hear from Bill Browder, who's keeping a sharp eye on that. Congressional leaders are citing the Magnitsky Act in asking Donald Trump to get behind the thorough investigation. Bill Browder is the force behind that act. That is coming up in a few minutes. First, though, to immigration with some half dozen stories over the last 48 hours, and none of them, I'm sorry to say, very encouraging. Apparently, Donald Trump has not heard enough of this. Remember when you first heard that audio obtained by Politico? Trapped immigrant children separated from their parents? I don't know about you, but that part you just heard there is the most I have ever been able to listen to. I always turn it off. To people of conscience, it is unbearable to hear and to imagine putting more kids in that situation beyond imagining. But... Trump admin officials have told The Washington Post that the admin is actively considering plans that could again separate parents and children at the U.S.-Mexico border, hoping to reverse soaring numbers of families attempting to cross illegally into the U.S. Because that worked so well last time. My God, have you seen the New York Times article? Ran earlier this week, this tiny two-year-old girl who's been separated from her parents since July perched on a court chair while the judge questioned her. That's the picture they painted. The picture they showed is this teeny tiny toddler. It looks like she's sitting in either a little grocery basket or the bottom half of a a cat pan. Either way, that's a pretty small conveyance and she fits right in there. Now, how can we imagine wreaking that indelible horror on more children. She sat there trying to answer questions from a judge. She's two years old. But the Trumps are looking at it again. Let's go back to the post for the details. Quote, one option under consideration is for the government to detain asylum-seeking families together for up to 20 days, then give parents the choice. Stay in family detention with your child for months or years as your immigration case proceeds, or allow your children to be taken to a government shelter so other relatives or guardians can seek 
custody. Now stay tuned. In a few minutes, we're, we're going to talk about where those kids are ending up now. It's not with relatives or guardians, unless you want to expand guardians. Back to the article. That option called binary choice is one of several under consideration amid the president's frustration over border security. He's been, a, been unable to fulfill key promises to build that border wall and end what he calls catch and release, a process that began under past administrations in which most detained families are quickly freed to await immigration hearings. What a dehumanizing phrase. Catch and release. Mere prey, they. More from the article. The number of migrant family members arrested and charged with illegally crossing the border jumped 38 percent in August. They are now at record levels, according to DHS officials. Senior administration officials say they are not planning to revive the chaotic forced separations carried out by the Trump administration in May and June that spawned an enormous political backlash and led to a court order to reunite families. Oh, yeah, that one's worked really well, too. They're all back together now. No, they're not. More on that later. Last paragraph from the article. Because they feel compelled to do something, officials say senior White House advisor Stephen Miller, ah, dead-eyed Stephen, is advocating for tough measures because he believes the springtime separations worked as an effective deterrent to illegal crossings. Well, so would cattle prods, dead-eye Stephen. We don't use those. Not to be outdone, House Majority Leader wants to get that wall built. From Politico, House Majority Leader Kevin McCarthy is sliding far to the right on immigration policy in an effort to woo hardline conservatives who may oppose his leadership next year. This is from Politico. The California Republican revealed a new bill earlier this week that would fully fund President Donald Trump's $25 billion border wall, complete with cattle prods. No, I'm kidding. A key White House priority, Bade writes in Politico. That's Rachel Bade. That comes just a couple of weeks after McCarthy pushed for a House vote on his resolution rejecting the idea of allowing undocumented immigrants the right to vote. What a showman, huh? That was really going to happen. Anyway, Trump ally Newt Gingrich wrote in a tweet storm on McCarthy's bill, Kevin McCarthy has the only practical, intellectually honest response to the wave of drugs and violent gangs crossing our southern border. Practical. Intellectually honest. Okay. Meanwhile, CNN has the story of a four-year-old girl sent home to Guatemala after six months in detention. The ACLU and other advocates say her father was notified half an hour before her flight arrived. Too bad. He lives eight hours away. Now, that came up in a court hearing on Tuesday where the ACLU says it has serious concerns about how long ICE is taking to reunify kids with their families and how poor the communications are once the kids are set for transit. The government says, point taken. If the point is taken, why the hell is it working to set up more of this? Wait, there's more. An AP investigation finds a, quote, recipe for disaster with hundreds of children still in detention, their parents deported, and adoptions underway. Here's the story, quote, The AP investigation identified holes in the system 
that allows state court judges to grant custody of migrant children to American families without notifying their parents. And today, with hundreds of those mothers and fathers deported thousands of miles away, the risk has grown exponentially. This AP story tracks two-year-old Alexa as she is seized from her mother, crossing illegally into Texas, with U.N. immigration officers telling her on the spot that the mom, Araceli, would never see that child again. Right there. Now, this happened on Obama's watch. Less than half an hour after being taken from her mom, Alexa's custody was given over to a foster couple 28 minutes after she was taken in a hearing that Araceli and her attorney didn't even know about. As the AP story says, the federal system that had custody of Alexa says the state courts never should have allowed foster parents to get that far, no matter how good their intentions. The judge wished the foster parents luck. But, quote, each state court system from New York to California runs wardship and adoption proceedings differently, and sometimes there are even variations between counties. You know, if, if you really think there's value in detaining these kids, there would be value as well in unifying the system and making it consistent. If you actually recognize them as human beings who have rights, who have mental health that needs to be looked after, who are delicate due to their age and their level of care that they need, the very least you could do is smooth the way through the system. Even if you think the system is doing the right thing, make the system work. The Associated Press article goes on. It cites the struggles of two Guatemalan mothers who fought to get their kids back. One succeeded with a million dollars worth of donated legal services, accessible to all indeed. The other one failed. Her child was permanently adopted, gone forever. And remember, the point of the story from the AP is that we are in line for this to just keep happening again and again. All right, let's look at that crisis afresh. Imagine what it would look like without ICE. A group called Miente wants to take that a step further. Yes, abolish ICE, but also remove Attorney General Jeff Sessions, repeal laws that criminalize migration, end all forms of detention, defund Border Patrol, and halt ongoing immigration enforcement programs like Operation Streamline. Melissa Franco of Miente says the question she is most often asked is, why not abolish the whole Department of Homeland Security? That quote is excerpted from a story by journalist Tina Vasquez, published jointly by the New York Review of Books and Rewire.News. Abolish ICE beyond a slogan. She is with me on the phone. Hi, Tina. Hi. I know that most people are going to hear abolish ICE. Yes, right. And, you know, tomorrow we're going to make the sunset in the east. It does sound like such a windmill to tilt at. What gives organizations like Miente and others who would like to work toward this the idea that something of that scale is even possible? Um, I think the thing that activists and organizers point to a lot is that immigration and customs enforcement um, in the scheme of things is a relatively new agency. It was only created in 2003 as part of the formation of the Department of Homeland Security after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And so it's not like Border Patrol, which has been around since the 1920s. Um, It's it's relatively new. And there are examples, some of which were cited in the piece, uh, of what it could look like to 
maybe not abolish ICE tomorrow, but certainly chip away at it and make it harder for the agency to carry out its primary function, which is to detain and deport immigrants. And what would it look like at the border? With the removal of ICE, what would a border crossing look like? I mean, that's, you know, (laughs) it's primarily Customs and Border Protection and Border Patrol handle uh, what you see happening at the border. So the family separation policy that I think is what really sort of spurred on the Abolish ICE movement in the United States, um, like those family separations were actually not carried out by ICE. But then what you see is you see the parents of those children, then they get sent to ICE custody, and that's where you enter the detention system. Um, And so that part of it wouldn't exist anymore if what activists want actually comes to fruition. um, We wouldn't detain immigrants anymore and we wouldn't deport immigrants anymore, which is its own sort of form of family separation. Mm -hmm. So are we talking about a proposal for absolutely open borders? I mean, that was kind of touched on on the piece. I think uh, the organizers that I spoke to, some of them openly advocate for open borders. Um, Some of them are more hesitant to answer questions like that because they know that that appears to be a very radical stance. And at some point, you're going to need elected officials to get on board um, so that this sort of transitions from radical rhetoric to an you know, actual policy changes. And so um, I, you know, I, I think it would be up to me, Henthin, organizations that are really pushing for the movement to abolish ICE to answer those questions. But I did ask Marissa Franco, and um, she was reluctant to respond to that because she knew that if you are talking about open borders, it's really hard to get elected officials interested, and it's certainly hard to get the American public interested. You know, I think the American public might be less interested in the whole thing if it hadn't been for the child and parent separations. But once that audio came out from ProPublica, which you cited in the piece, I just think it it brought home to people who wouldn't give it the time of day before. We're talking about babies, about toddlers crying who have no idea what the heck is going on around them, pulled away from their parents. And we find out in many cases that's for good. They're not going back to their families. I mean, I think that's why um, what's happening around the movement to abolish ICE is so interesting, because I think a lot of Americans did sort of get behind the movement and began using that, you know, for lack of better word, slogan um, as the family separation policy began to unfold, even though it wasn't ICE that was actually carrying out those family separations. But Mm -hmm. uh, there was a lot to unpack there because Uh, We found out as recently as this week, I reported on a new Amnesty International report that found that it's actually, you know, the numbers that were released by uh, federal agencies, which found that over 3,000 families were separated. It was actually over 6,000 families, and it impacted Mm -hmm. 15,000 individual people. Um, And the family separation policy was sort of confirmed by Jeff Sessions in April 2018, but now there is evidence to suggest that the program was piloted as Um, far back as July 2017 without much oversight or accountability. So even even the 6,000 number that we have now of families that were separated, there is no way to know how certain that number is, if there are more, if there are less, if there are children that will never see their parents again because they were deported, if there are children that are still detained that we don't know about. Um, The way that it was carried out was so egregious that we still don't know the full impact of it. And I, and I think people that, that would rush to make the distinction between, well, ICE did this, Border Patrol did that, the U.S. government did the other, I think most of them would understand that this is all one big intricate system. And if you have to examine the one part, you have to examine the whole thing. 
Certainly. I mean, the, all of these federal immigration agencies fall under the Department of Homeland Security, which, again, is, is relatively new. It was created in 2003. And so, I mean, that's that's part of the issue, too. I mean, when people ask me, well, what, what can we do? How can we help? Um, the thing that I always say is to better understand your own immigration system. How do these pieces come together, what agencies work with what other agencies, you know, what is the Office of Refugee Resettlement, how do they work with ICE, um, these are sort of the overarching things that are maybe like, they sound like unnecessary details, but once you really sort of get the picture and you see how these agencies are working together, and even under the Trump administration where um, U.S. Citizen and Immigration Services, USCIS, wasn't ever thought of as sort of an enforcement federal agency. It was thought of as like providing services. It naturalizes people. But now under the Trump administration, you even see USCIS sort of engaging in immigration enforcement. Um, so all of these systems are at play. And I think what's interesting about Mijente is that in their platform, what it means to them to abolish ICE, they make all of these interlocking systems very clear. You know, I want to commend you on something that you did inside the article is that we, we hear from a lot of people that, oh, well, yeah, Donald Trump put kids in cages, but so did Barack Obama put kids in cages. I, I'm no apologist for President Obama, but there's an important distinction there that I don't hear made very often. Can you explain the distinction between those two? I mean, yes. Yeah, so uh, as immigrant communities like to remind me very often, which is why I report it so often, um, the Obama administration was very... I mean, for a lack of a better word, unkind to immigrant communities and documented immigrant communities in particular. Mm -hmm. So this is an administration that brought back um, family detention that also sort of uh, chipped away at due process rights for asylum seekers, um, detained people, you know, in what they're calling these detention camps. The Obama administration did all of that, but that was in response to what President Obama called a humanitarian crisis at the border, where you saw very large numbers of Central American asylum seekers showing up at ports of entry and at the border um, seeking asylum. So, so much of what Obama did was in response to that. We were simply unprepared to handle the number of asylum seekers coming to the U.S., whereas with the Trump administration, they created this chaos by separating families. So I would say that is the primary distinction. While they are engaging in similar kinds of immigration enforcement, similar pro policies and tactics when it comes to asylum seekers, this is a problem that was created by the Trump administration because by separating these families with no mechanism for reuniting them, um, it's a very different scenario than what you saw under the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. And let me refer people who might be just joining us to the article we're talking about. is jointly published by the New York Review of Books and by Rewire.News. It's Abolish Ice Beyond a Slogan, and I'm talking to its author, Tina Vasquez. Let's talk about what elements of any such plan, be it either from just abolishing ICE or to the whole plan of revisiting every element of who crosses our border, when and why, which of those have any potential to get a hearing among sitting, uh, sitting people in Congress, people who are already in power and might give it a sympathetic year? Do you have any sense of whether it could get traction there? I mean, so there has been um, a bill that was uh, that's going to be introduced by three Democrats that seeks to um, shut down ICE, probe whether its agents has, have flouted international law, and then also sort of create a commission to rethink how the federal government handles undocumented immigrants and asylum seekers in particular. Um, 
and but but the issue with that is that Republicans um, are going to use bills like that or any support that Democrats may be giving to the movement um, to paint Democrats as radicals or as extremists. So you're going to see abolish ICE become um, a wedge issue, even though the way that we frame it is it's you know it's not necessarily a radical stance given how relatively new ICE is, but mm-hmm. it's definitely going to become a wedge between the two parties. And there are people who have signed on. I mean, you saw um, Ocasio-Cortez use it as a as a platform, um, but she sort of backed away about the deportation bit, saying that for her, abolishing ICE didn't mean ending deportation. And to all of the organizers that I spoke to for the piece or impacted people in the piece, um, for them, ending deportation was certainly part of the larger picture of abolishing ICE. Um, and, and there are people who can't get on board on that, um, you know, because that would be political suicide for them. And so I think you're going to see more of this play out as the midterm elections draw closer. I know I'm asking you for a bit of analysis here that you may or may not be comfortable with. So just tell me if you're not. But I'm wondering how tied you think the fate of this kind of proposal is to the popularity of, of Donald Trump himself. Do you think that they, the approval of one exists and survives independent of the other, or are the two inextricably tied? Um, I mean, I've, I've talked about this pretty openly. I, I, for me, as a journalist that covers immigration, this is sort of one of the biggest hurdles where um, I've been covering immigration primarily for three years now, but I've also been covering it more broadly for almost 10 years. And so um, for many years, I have seen how various agencies, uh, various administrations, no matter what their party, how they sort of wield the immigration system in ways that are harmful um, to immigrant communities. And so uh, the concern for me, at least, is that the abolish ICE movement um, is being completely tied to the Trump administration with the belief that if we get Trump out of office, then our immigration system is fine and it operates normally, I mean, whatever that means. And, and that goes back to why I recommend um, that people really take the time to understand how the immigration system works, because it historically has been a very racist system that prioritized white immigrants. And so without that context or that understanding, abolish ICE is very much tied to just getting Donald Trump out of office. But as we've seen under previous administrations, including the Obama administration, is that so much of what we're seeing now, whether it's workplace raids or mass deportations of asylum seekers or detaining parents and children together in detention facilities, all of that happened under Obama as well. So it's it's an issue with the system, and it's an issue with agencies like ICE in particular. Um, it's not necessarily tied to Donald Trump. Tina Vasquez. You know, I should note, Tina, that while I was mentioning again your credentials and where the article is published, I have people from Rewire on so often when I do Brad's show that there might be a, a mistake in apprehension that I'm on the payroll. I just really like the work you guys do. So. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I just want to let everyone know Tina is here and not on my payroll. So, but I thank you for a really good piece of work, Tina, and I hope to talk to you again. Thank you. Me too. And with that, we take a break. In just a moment, what we know about the Jamal Khashoggi disappearance. I'm Angie Coiro. This is the broadcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. 
but we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit if you can by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Coiro in for Brad and Desi today. The mysteries around the disappearance of journalist Jamal Khashoggi have shifted, but they have not gone away. Developments and rumors in the air are in some cases very hard to tell apart. To remind you of the essentials, Khashoggi is, I'm, I'm still using the present tense here. His death has not been proven. He was global opinions columnist for the Washington Post, and his death has been widely reported. Those reports as of this moment are relying on each other. He was last seen entering the Saudi consulate in Istanbul. No footage reportedly shows him leaving there, just arriving. Turkey claims to have audio and video proof, horrific proof, that he was in fact murdered inside, but they don't want to release that because it goes to the issue of how they spy within their own consulate. Well, but then nothing's proven, is it? They say they have the audio. That's it. So the specific proof, as of the moment I'm saying this, has not been released. Khashoggi is a prominent critic of Saudi Arabia. So is Turkey. The U.S. is engaged in arms trade with Saudi Arabia. As allegations in Khashoggi's disappearance have mounted, congressional pressure to suspend arms trade and to impose sanctions on Saudi Arabia are getting an awful lot of attention. But nothing's happened yet. Trump is mealy-mouthing around it. In yesterday's show, I mentioned the Magnitsky Act. That is the law under which Congress is asking Trump to look into sanctions against Saudi Arabia. That act exists because of the heartfelt work of Bill Browder, who pressed for action in the torture and killing of his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky. As you can imagine, Bill Browder, who is the founder and CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, is following this case very closely. Bill, thank you for giving me some time. Great to be here. You know, so much of what's being reported as fact in headlines, when you dig further into the story, developments are a a little more squishy. It's reports of reports of. For example, let's talk about this reported uh, Turkish video and audio that proves conclusively that Mr. Khashoggi has, in fact, been killed. And a lot of headlines are saying he's been killed, and you read down, and it's based on Turkish reports. Have you, has any report reached your ears that is more reliable that says this, in fact, the audio and video do exist, they have been reviewed, and this is established as fact? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm not close enough to the investigation to know what's real and what's not real. And what I can say is that if the allegations are true, these um, allegations of a grisly murder using bone saws and dismemberment, if anything is even close to the truth, then um, this is one of the most shocking um, 
premeditated political murders of modern times, and um, it would require a very robust response. And um, I think that, that at this point, all we can do as observers is wait until the evidence um, proves one way or another and proves conclusively one way or another um, what happened to Mr. Khashoggi. And I think there's some reliance on the fact that nothing is fully established yet, at least not in the public eye, that there's some reliance on that by Donald Trump to say it's not really time to move ahead with any actions. It's not time to suspend arms trade. It's not time to worry about a coming conference and whether or not the U.S. is in attendance. What sort of proof do you think is appropriate to say we may not have all the I's dotted, but it's time to assume something has gone badly wrong here? Well, something has gone badly wrong. This man has disappeared. He stopped. Um, his, his his phone is unanswered. He didn't emerge from the embassy. His fiance was standing right outside the embassy waiting for him. Um, he was being threatened by the Saudis. Um, he had been invited back um, uh, a couple days later. Fifteen um, identified Saudi uh, um, diplomatic passported officials arrived and then left almost immediately. I mean, the circumstances of this case are, are dramatic. Um, there's clearly something wrong. Um, uh, and and um, in terms of should sanctions be imposed at this point? No, the sanctions should only be imposed when there's clear evidence. Um, but at this point, the Saudis, the burden is on the Saudis to uh, explain what happened to Mr. Khashoggi, um, not the other way around. Mm hmm. You know, you can say that there's a, a different level of evidence required for government action versus who attends a conference, a tech conference. We're already seeing uh, especially a number of media groups pull out of this expected tech conference that is uh, being attended by or put together by the Saudi government advisory board. Is it appropriate at this point for people to say we are not going to attend until answers have been obtained? Because, again, that's a different standard than should a government make its move. Of course. I mean, so at, at this point, there, there's there's a reasonably strong suspicion that something truly horrible has happened, um, which was initiated by the Saudi uh, secret services. And based on that, I mean, it's no great um, punishment not to show up at a conference. I think that that the um, burden of uh, the burden is now on the Saudis to explain what happened. And until they have, um, none of these people should be showing up and legitimizing uh, this country. Uh, can you tell me, Bill Browder, about the, the echoes of the Magnitsky case in what we're seeing today and, and what parallels you see? Well, basically, the, the Magnitsky case was all about a, um, uh, a lawyer, my lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, um, who uncovered a, a vast Russian government corruption scheme he exposed it, and in retaliation, um, he was arrested, tortured for 358 days, and killed. And then the Russian government covered up his murder. And then they um, and there was no there was no mechanism to get justice for him. And so we created a mechanism which became known as the Magnitsky Act. And the Magnitsky Act imposes visa sanctions and asset freezes on the people who killed him and the people who do similar types of human rights abuses in Russia and now around the world. The similarities um, are, are very clear that you have potentially, and, and, again, and again, I say potentially because it hasn't been proven, um, a, uh, a situation where there was a person um, who was a critic 
of the Saudi regime, that he was outspoken about his criticism, that the authorities apparently didn't like it. And then according to these reports, he was lured into the Saudi embassy in Istanbul, where, again, if you want to believe the worst reports, he was then uh, tortured, killed, and then most gruesomely uh, dismembered, and then had a, and then his body parts were removed from the embassy. Um, that, if if um, if it's if it's anything close to what I've just described, um, deserves the most robust response from the, from the United States, and not just the United States, but but all all civilized countries. You cannot have a critic, a Washington Post columnist, um, being murdered like that, if indeed that's what happened, without a consequence. Because if it, if, if it goes without a consequence, then it's basically open season for every autocrat and every authoritarian against every one of their enemies everywhere in the world. Yeah, I think one of the most alarming things that I've read today, and again, almost everything is rumor and hearsay at this point, but one of the most alarming things I've read is the assertion that Whatever moves were taken in this case may have been emboldened by Donald Trump's painting the media as an enemy and as an appropriate enemy. Well, I, um, I, I mean, I think that that um, that that's uh, that's certainly concerning, very concerning. But but um, you know, the most concerning for me is 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 just the fact that I mean, just just all the facts of this particular case. I mean, you know, we're talking about symbolism there. We're talking about very hard, raw, and disgusting facts in this particular case. And I think at the moment we should focus on this case, and then we can broaden it out after we know what happened in this case. I really appreciate you taking a few taking a few minutes with us, and uh, we'll continue to watch to see what happens. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Bill Browder is online at BillBrowder, B-R-O-W-D-E-R.com, BillBrowder.com. Moving on from there, it's a good time to focus on a win, shall we? Thursday, the state Supreme Court in the state of Washington declared the death penalty unconstitutional. Where does that put us in the larger picture across the country? I have on the line here Sarah Kraft. She is the Equal Justice USA's Death Penalty Program Director. EJUSA is working to end the death penalty across the U.S. Sarah, welcome and congratulations on the victory. Well, thank you so much. This is really shared uh, in so many uh, places around the state of Washington and around the country, but I appreciate your congratulations. Yeah, yeah, I think everybody wins on this one. Exactly. So let's talk first about that Washington victory. What what was the nature of it? How did that constitutional challenge succeed? Sure, absolutely. Well, uh, as you may have read, it was a 9-0 decision from the Washington State Supreme Court. The justices ruled based on the Washington State Constitution, so that ruling is not appealable to the U.S. Supreme Court. Five justices came together on a majority opinion that stated that the death penalty as it's currently applied in Washington State is unconstitutional because of its arbitrary and racially biased nature. And then another four justices wrote a concurring opinion that agreed with that majority opinion, but went a little bit further and said, not only is it currently applied unconstitutionally uh, in terms of racial bias and arbitrariness, but there are a larger set of issues with the death penalty that make it unconstitutional because of a broader consensus away from the death penalty throughout the state in Washington. Interesting. So where does that put Washington uh, in the larger context? How many states have already decided the death penalty is not for them? 
So as of yesterday, there are 20 states that do not have the death penalty. On top of those 20 states, there are three states that currently have a gubernatorial moratorium. That means that governors have announced they will not be executing while they're in office. That's Oregon, Colorado, and Pennsylvania. And then there's another seven states on top of that that actually haven't had an execution in over 10 years. So we consider those states that are really dormant in the use of their uh, death penalty. Um, of those 20 states that do not have the death penalty anymore, um, eight of those have been in the last uh, 11 years. So we're seeing a big increase in the last decade or so of states that are doing away with their death penalty. You know, the scary thing about states going dormant without any actual decision on the record is, of course, they can wake back up and start doing it again. That is true. That is true. We've had that happen recently. Nebraska uh, resumed executions this last summer. Um, Tennessee resumed executions after a long time without them. But the overall trend in the country is certainly away from both executions and even more so away from death sentences, which is a better barometer of where we are as a country in terms of our feelings about the death penalty, uh, whether jurors are willing to implement it and whether prosecutors are willing to seek it. Is there anything in the works on the federal level? Uh, right now, there are uh, no federal abolition bills that I am aware of. I work less on federal issues, but mm -hmm. um, there have been federal abolition bills offered in the past. There are certainly bills that have been offered in other Congresses that have limited the use of the death penalty. Um, there are challenges uh, to the federal death penalty, but um, you know the federal death penalty is in of itself its own system. Mm -hmm. You know we we have 52 death penalties in this country, uh, or we have the opportunity to have 52 death penalties in this country. The 50 states, the federal government, and the U.S. military, uh, and you know with those 20 states and the District of Columbia outlawing the death penalty, you know the federal is just one more of those quote unquote jurisdictions that has it. Let's talk for just a minute about the Equal Justice USA techniques to try to get the death penalty reviewed and hopefully abolished state by state. I know that we're talking about raising awareness. We're probably talking about some activism. What techniques are proving to be the most effective? Just getting the word out to the public or petitions, public protests? What's in your toolkit? Really all of it. I mean, yesterday's uh, end of the death penalty in Washington was a legal strategy. It was a court strategy that went out from brilliant colleagues here in Washington state. Um, we've seen those types of victories in New York and in Delaware, uh, where the courts have overturned the death penalty and there's no longer a usable death penalty on the books. Um, states like uh, New Jersey and Illinois and Maryland uh, legislatively abolished the death penalty. So their state legislatures heard the will of the people and decided to do away with the death penalty um, through bills in their legislature signed by their governors. Um, you know, we uh, at Equal Justice USA partner with local organizations to find the best strategies that work for them on the ground and that work in those states. So we use all of those tools. We work on litigation um, and partnership with litigators. We do public education. We work with campaigners who want to do legislative action. We do petitions, um, really all of those tools. And what we're seeing is that all of those tools are working in our favor. They are the momentum is with us uh, to do away with the death penalty, and people are, people in the country are really uh, opening their eyes to the broken death penalty system. You know, Sarah, one of the things that occurs to me is that 
If you understand statistics and research, if you can read, it's pretty hard to deny that even if you support the death penalty in principle, that it is not evenly applied, that if you're a certain color skin, you have more chance to end up on death row, more chance to end up in prison, period. So I'm curious what kind of arguments the other side can make when that's just so egregiously unfair. What do you hear from them? Well, you know, yesterday's decision in Washington was very interesting because the Supreme Court really um, put a stake in the ground around this issue of systemic bias. They said, um, you know, you don't have to show uh, individual bias in a given case in order to conclude that the system itself is biased and capricious. Um, They took a study that was done on every single death eligible case in Washington state. And they concluded that the entire system was biased rather than just looking at the case in front of them. Um, the one man's case in front of them. And what we've seen in other places is courts unwillingness to do that. They, uh, an unwillingness to look at the justice system as it is a system, uh, you know, in McCluskey, which is a pretty famous U.S. Supreme Court case, they basically said you have to show um, bias in your individual case in order for uh, uh, courts to rule that um, that there is racial bias, and that is a really hard thing to prove. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think I think we could see a change. We could see a shift uh, based on this decision. We could see courts help um, having a better understanding of racial bias as a system. I think as a country, we are starting to understand. Uh, racism as part of a system of oppression. And I think that that could signal uh, some new challenges throughout the country. Sarah, I really appreciate what Equal Justice is doing. And thank you so much for your time. Wonderful. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Sarah Kraft. She is Equal Justice USA's Death Penalty Program Director. Poet and journalist Eliza Griswold has a superb new book out on a Pennsylvania family, then two Pennsylvania families, who suffered from nearby fracking as that same gas company was making their neighbors financially comfortable for the first time in years. You can imagine the tension. Amity and Prosperity, the book, next on the broadcast. Five major corporations now own over 80% of all media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Your support helps us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations across the country. You can make a real difference by supporting independent media. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. Join us at bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Claro. Eliza Griswold is solidly on the journalistic and literary maps. She won the Friedman Prize for her work investigating Pakistan's Waziristan Agency, the Lucas Book Prize for The 10th Parallel, Dispatches from the Fault Line Between Christianity and Islam, and, in 2012, a Guggenheim Fellowship. Her new book is Amity and Prosperity, One Family and the Fracturing of America. She spent seven years with Stacey Haney in Pennsylvania, just at the edge of Appalachia. Stacy's teenage son got sicker and sicker over time. Farm animals were being born deformed. Their drinking water was turning black. 
Stacy realized it was a fracking operation not far from her house that was to blame, but the gas company behind that operation was handing out big money for leases in her poverty-stricken town. So lots of neighbors just wanted Stacy, the troublemaker, to shut up and go away. I interviewed Eliza last week about her book, and here is part of our conversation. To understand how the economy works, which was, of course, fed by the glass, glass production, because an early natural gas boom fed glass production, um, coal, the long history here is coal. Mm -hmm. And that, too, is super important in understanding why it is worth it to people to sign these leases with gas companies. They have extremely sophisticated understandings of the minerals underneath their property. And when the coal, coal mining today is not, you know, room and pillar which is when in our, it's certainly in my imagination before I, I saw and understood what coal mining is today, I saw people underground picking away with axes at coal. And that's just not what mining is. Mining is an industrial kind of coal mining called long wall mining that literally when it comes under your farm, it's going to take, by definition, you're going to lose your water. Mm -hmm. So Prosperity, the, the book is named for two towns where Stacey Haney's family is from, Amity, and nearby Prosperity. Prosperity has been, the verb is undermined. Prosperity has lost its water. Because, I mean, there are areas where water remains, but farmers have left because they don't have water for their cows anymore. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons that Stacy signed this lease, it wasn't just that she was going to have a big payday, but she was going to be able to stop the coal mine from coming under her farm because they don't know where the coal mine is going to go and they don't know what the costs of mining are going to be. Mm -hmm. Well, we hear a lot about how, how bad fracking is for the environment and all of the chemicals that are involved and all the water that is needed for the process and polluted in the process. But how does that compare to coal mining? I mean, in terms of, if you, you know, the devil you know versus the devil you don't, how much damage had coal done by the time fracking came in? That's such a great question. And I think that that is really the question that I, as an outsider and as a reporter coming in to cover the fracking boom really needed to ask. Mm -hmm. And that question didn't always get asked. Because if you sit down and you talk with old timers who live in Amity and Prosperity and surrounding towns, they will explain to you that Industry, the industry is a give and take. They've been living next to and on top of coal mining for more than a century. And that means those jobs, they've, they've gotten jobs really in exchange for their health and things that we wouldn't think about. Roads, giant coal waste ponds that like one of, so I had the pleasure last year of going to report on the most incredible young woman whose name is Veronica Coptis. I wrote about her in The New Yorker and Veronica's nickname is Ronnie because her mother gave all of her daughters gender-neutral nicknames so that they could survive in a man's world. Mm. So Ronnie grew up in a part of a, a neighboring county where the mines came through. She was learning to drive when they came through, and she, she was 15, and they shut down the roads that she was learning to drive on because, of course, they own, I think they own about 30% of the county, which you can just think of that. So it's not just what we think of like, oh, coal mining and you know, coal ash and, and these waste products in the air and in the water, it is literally the takeover of the entire county. And and there are so many knock-on effects from if a, if a company or a series of companies owns 30% of your county, well, you can't find housing. 
You can't, you know, you think about gutting the tax base. Who's paying for the roads to be repaired? Mm-hmm. You know, so all of these effects of what I would call public poverty, how do you how do we look in a more sophisticated way at the privatization of profit and the socialization of cost? Mm-hmm. So companies that are extractive companies pass on environmental costs, social costs, infrastructure costs, cost to education, because people are going to drop out of high school. If you can make $150,000 as a coal miner, high school, what's that? Forget it. And that's happening now with the natural gas industry as well. You know, when you talk about high school and that sort of thing going by the wayside, Harley is Stacy's son. And by the time you met Harley, he was already very sick. Um, the illnesses he was evincing could or could not have come from what was turning out to be in the soil and the water because these things exist anyway. Arsenic exists in soil. As one of the company, I think it was an attorney who said, well, didn't you take woodworking class? Maybe you got arsenic in woodworking class. And he's Harley is like the symbol of how bad it can get and the run-on problems. I mean, nothing's been solved for Harley. Harley is such a human – he's a human being who really exemplifies how rural Americans have paid for the energy appetites of urban Americans for centuries. And they – that – so Harley, when I met him and he was 14, he was pretty sick. Um, he still wanted to be a veterinarian. He was going to be the first person in his family to go to college. He loves animals. Really, animals play a big role in his life and, and in the book. And – Watching animals sicken and die, which is one of the ways they figured out what they think was happening to them in relation to pollution and contamination um, and toxic exposure. Watching his farm animals sick and die, um, he decided that he couldn't take it. He couldn't be a vet anymore. So then the next job Harley wanted to do is he wanted to join the U.S. military. But once he was a couple of years into his family fighting this company and feeling that the government had failed him, Harley no no longer wanted to be a soldier because he no longer wanted to fight for a country that had failed him. And he was also sick. He had chronic problems that he thought would make it impossible to actually be a soldier like his grandfather, Pappy, who Mm. was a Vietnam combat vet. Um, so then Harley's next attempt at, you know, he finished high school doing in his mom's basement. He, he, as part of what happened to this family, they had to abandon a farm that had been in their family for a century. And they lived it, they moved into a tiny crappy house nearby, um, cause they really wanted to stay in Amity and there was no room, no bedroom for Harley. So he moved into this unfinished basement and he finished high school through cyber school and I, there was nothing more depressing than watching that. I mean, mm-hmm. he just was completely disengaged. And he decided he would start a lawn care company because his cousins were looking to sell off some tractors. And he started this lawn care company that um, was too hard for him. I mean, he was he didn't really have the skills to run a small business. His mom had to do a lot of it. He was doing a lot of dangerous high tree work, which involved a lot of expensive insurance. So he gave up on it. And finally, he went to work as a pipeliner. So he is right now laying pipe for natural gas, which is the very industry that he feels has really stolen his life. In fact, today, he is in Massachusetts because he's on a crew that is repairing that massive explosion that happened a couple of weeks ago outside of Boston. So he is repairing pipeline right now um, outside of Boston for an explosion. So that's what has happened to Harley. 
when does Stacy first start noting that things were going south with her family and her house? So Stacy starts noting um, things are going south before I met her. She and her neighbor Beth Voiles in the fall, late summer of 2010, they, every year they go to the Washington County Fair. And the Washington County Fair is really, they pattern their lives about it because they have these small farms and they show animals and 4-H is a big, big part of Stacy's life with her kids. So she and her neighbor Beth met up at the farm and Beth told Stacy that their puppy had died. Um, and that was enough. They were both families. They treat their animals like children, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, Beth is always feeding her animals angel hair pasta and zucchini and meatball subs. And, you know, and so the, they are like people in their family. So Stacy knew Cummins, this puppy, very well. In fact, Harley was already sick. And one of the things that distracted Harley, because he'd missed most of his seventh grade year at home, sitting at home, was playing with his puppy. Uh, that Beth Beth's daughter would bring the puppy, you know, they live next door. So just bring the puppy down to play with with hunters, with Hunter, who is Harley's puppy. So when Stacy learned that this puppy had died, she and Beth, it wasn't long after that, that they started to think, okay, we've lost this puppy. We've lost a horse. Harley is mysteriously ill. And it was on the phone when Stacy was with Beth a couple of months after the fair that a light bulb went off for Stacy thinking, my God, could whatever is sickening our animals be sickening Harley also? And she called her, um, she called the pediatrician that moment as because he'd seen Harley many times. They couldn't figure it out. And he said, bring Harley in right away and we'll have her, him tested for arsenic exposure because that was one of the things that was sickening these animals. And so that was the fall, late fall 2010. And I met Stacy a couple of months after where she she had gone from having Harley tested for arsenic poisoning to starting to understand what might be in her and her daughter in her family's bodies as a result of, of exposure to oil and gas. And because she was a nurse at the nearby hospital, she could work up these tests with the head of the lab. So she had had her self and her children tested for benzene and toluene exposure mm -hmm. um, and discovered that they, that these gas-related materials were in their bodies. And she decided to speak out publicly for the first time at a local gathering, uh, it, it actually in West Virginia, just about an hour from her house in a place called Morgantown, Morgantown Airport. They'd taken over the airport for the day, these, the, these people who were concerned about fracking. And I happened to be there dead that day. And I was sitting a couple of rows behind Stacy and her daughter Paige and Paige at 11 was wearing her pajamas that morning and she was grouchy. I just didn't know who they were, but I heard them talking. And uh, Paige was hungry. Stacy didn't have anything for her. She said, you should have eaten before we left the house. And I reached into my backpack and pulled out some earnest bar that I usually have with me to <laughs> eat while I'm working. And uh, Paige very wisely, you know, disdainfully said, I don't want that gross bar. Um, <laughs> and a couple of minutes later, Stacy got up and she started to talk. And she said, my name is Stacy Haney. I'm a single mom of two kids. I'm a nurse at the local hospital. And we have benzene and toluene in us. And we think it's from exposure to about a quarter of a mile from our house, we have discovered a massive industrial 
industrial site that's just gone in behind a high fence. We discovered it because my daughter went on Google Earth in her seventh grade computer class, and she her assignment was to find our land, find our house, and she found this massive waste pond uh, that's just a quarter of a mile from us. And so that's as much as Stacy knew when I met her. It was really the beginning of this mystery. And I was with her over these seven years as she and her neighbor began to piece together with the help of different experts they found uh, what was going on. And it turned out that this massive pond that was as large as her entire farm mm -hmm. was leaking. And it was not only leaking into the ground, but it was off-gassing massive amounts of, of, a, of a gas called hydrogen sulfide. It was really bacterial infection in the pond, mm -hmm. and and that also uh, was leading to health problems. They believe. Mm -hmm. You had mentioned at the end of your book that you were working overseas on stories when you suddenly when you realized the connection between the unreliability of infrastructure and care from the government in the face of this kind of thing. And you saw the same thing happening now in America. Can you draw that connection? Absolutely. You know, this to me, I think if there is one takeaway for me from writing this, this is really... So I have spent most of my career as a journalist, so probably 15 years as a conflict correspondent working in war zones in Africa and in Asia, Afghanistan, Iraq, um, Somalia, uh, and other places like Nigeria. And I was in Nigeria. I was in northern Nigeria uh, in a very fraught place when uh, the bridge in Minneapolis collapsed in 2013 and 13 people were killed. And a bridge had collapsed in Nigeria also, and I had to get across. I was covering a little local war and i had to cut i had to cross a a river where there was no bridge anymore and i did what you do as a journalist so i was riding on this empty oil barrel across the river and i was thinking about minneapolis and i was thinking you know this is these social ills, these how our sense of collective poverty, right? The collapse of bridges, of what we call lifeline systems, bridges, roads, uh, reservoirs, the internet, the grid. These things are happening in America. And what I learned is, you know, there's something that we have for liberal ec economists have cast abroad since the 90s this idea of something we call the resource curse or sometimes the paradox of plenty mm -hmm. which is how is it that people who are often live on land the richest in natural resources are among the poorest on the earth right and we usually look at that in Africa and Asia we call it um, the global south like we're, where where do these problems happen the truth is they happen in America too and nowhere more so than Appalachia and that's really what I learned Poet and investigative journalist Eliza Griswold. Her book is Amity and Prosperity, One Family and the Fracturing of America. The whole interview will air this month on our in-deep radio stations and streams. Enough for you. Enough for me. Big time. I am handing the mic back to Brad and Desi for the next go-round. I will be talking to you again very soon. Thank you for having me. Until then, good luck, world. Good luck, world.